We uh, are going to pray in just a moment. And uh, in this prayer time, I want you to remember Mary Shantz. And a couple of things I want you to remember. Uh, She is going to deliver a baby in about a month or so, maybe a little less than that. And her father passed away this morning, and uh, they are in Illinois uh, together as a family. So there's several things up there, and they just need the prayers of their church family this morning. So um, if you would uh, do that, remember them as we uh, pray together, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's uh, one of the things that we will never fully comprehend, and that is the scope of life. In fact, it says in the Bible that it's but a vapor. And we don't know why some lives seem to be so long, some lives seem to be short, some lives seem to be just in between. But we do know one day we'll understand all of that better. And I thank you that in the meantime, that you have a heart for those who are grieving, those who are mourning. And uh, Lord, I want to pray that you would comfort all of the grieving today. This day and other holidays seem to kind of bring out that. And uh, we want to pray, Father, for comfort. But we want to particularly pray for Mary and for Tim and for their family. And we want to pray, Lord, that you would give them the comfort and remind them of the significance of this day that because Mary's father is a believer, that he's absent from the body, but he's present with the Lord. And I pray that you would remind them they're going to see him again. And even that body that is being prepared for burial will one day be raised up and put on immortality and glorified because when you redeem someone, you redeem them completely, body, soul, and spirit. It's just a matter of time. And I thank you for what he is experiencing now. And I pray, Lord, that some of that would splash over on them in the midst of their tears that they would feel the presence of the Lord, the promises of the Word, the hope of eternal life, and the joy of the Lord, even as their strength, that they would be able to smile through the tears and give a testimony to their kids of the hope and the faith that we have in Christ. In fact, Lord, I pray that for all of us here this morning. Our children need to know that Jesus is real. Our children need to know that Jesus died was buried and rose from the dead, that he rules and reigns even now from heaven's throne and that he is returning again. And I pray that more than just knowing that, I pray that they would come to trust that, to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ and surrender to him as Lord. And I pray that once they do that and for those who have, I pray that they would grow in grace and knowledge and be sanctified. And may they see the pattern for that in us. And so help us, Lord, as parents. Help us as grandparents. Help help us as brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, whatever we may be. Help us, Lord, to remember there are people watching us. And may Christ always be glorified, no matter what we're going through. And may they see the reality of a risen Christ in our lives. And thank you, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, that we're not just memorializing a dead figure in our religion, but we are worshiping a living Lord. And even so, as John said, come, 
Lord Jesus. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and thank you that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Paul said, lives in us. And it's to that end and for your glory we pray this morning in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Let's turn to the book of Romans this morning. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We are questioning beings, and we're supposed to be that way. Dolphins don't ask questions. Dogs don't ask questions. You've never seen an animal look at a sunset and say, I wonder what is going on here, or look at the stars, and I wonder how these things work. It's an amazing thing that humans made in the image of God we have a natural curiosity and we question things. And so we watch and we observe and we pay attention and we talk and we do experiments and we learn and we grow. And it's amazing when you think about just uh, going back even just a few decades, how much life has changed in terms of technology, in terms of medical science, in terms of what we know in the universe, just amazing. And why does that happen? Because we ask questions, because we are curious about things. It's said that in a, on a college campus, a uh, philosophy professor had his final exam for his students. And um, when the students got in there and got seated at their desk and they passed out the test, they turned the test over and they looked and there was only one question and the question was only one word. And the question on the test was, why? And everybody in the class flunked, except one person. And you know what that one person wrote? Because. And they passed. Now, we don't know if that's because this student was such a deep thinker. They knew what the professor wanted. Or maybe they just started writing and they just gave up. Who knows? But that one person passed. We are the kind of people, and God created us this way, that there needs to be something reasonable. There has to be a reason for things. The first thing a little kid will say to you when you tell them to do something is, Why? Why should I do that? And usually our answer is a deep philosophical because I said so, right? But there's always this questioning. Why? 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 And I find that in this eighth chapter of Romans, one of the great, great chapters in the Word of God, I find that there are some questions that are asked and questions that are answered. And you're going to notice in here as we read this, it's going to kind of hinge on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a typical Easter passage, and it's not necessarily a, a doctrine of the resurrection type passage, but the resurrection is in here because without the resurrection, our faith means absolutely nothing. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're of all men most miserable or most to be pitied. We're, we're fools if that's the case. But there's more than what we think that there is, and we need to explore that. So we're in Romans 8. Let's go down to verse 31. Romans 8, 31. And Paul begins with a question. What then shall we say to these things? Well, we always need to know something to say, don't we? 
In fact, we're supposed to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies in us. This is not just blind faith. This is not just check your brain at the door. This is reasonable. And Paul gives us some things to think about here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with Christ, also freely give us all things or everything we need for the plan of God? Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, that perfect death, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, meaning danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's out of Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet in all these things, or all these types of things, we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody ought to say an amen to that. That is our hope. And why is that our hope? Because Jesus lives. Jesus is seated on the throne. Jesus is making intercession for us. And Jesus is going to return. Our hope is not founded in this life. And it is not stuck in this life. In fact, our hope is in the eternal. And we have some questions that the resurrection answers for everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see is that the resurrection answers the absolute question, I'm calling it here. It's the ultimate. It's the question above all questions, and it's the question that supersedes everything else. I don't care if you know how to get to the moon. I don't care if you know how to get to Mars. I don't care if you know the molecular structure of something. I don't care if you can clone something. I don't care if you know how computers work and technology works and communication works. What does any of that matter if you can't get right with God and you die and spend an eternity in hell. You see, when Jesus talks about this, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. And we don't hear enough about that, do we? There is an afterlife. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And so you know that because God has put eternity in your heart. And those of you who fight so hard against all of that, there's only one reason you have to fight against it is because deep down you know there is more to this life than what we live here. And so Paul asks the question, 
if God is for us, who can be against us? Boy, that's a great question because the answer would be no one. The ultimate has spoken and he is for us. But boy, it's just as good to turn that around and say this. Yeah, but if God is against us, who can be for us? If God brings charges against you and against your sin, think about the Ten Commandments. Have you worshipped God as you should? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you honored your father and your mother? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever wanted what someone else has? I mean, we could go on and on with all of those. And the answer to that would be a yes, which means you are a lawbreaker, and God has every right to say, you have not worshipped me and honored me, and so therefore you will spend an eternity in hell. And down the list we would go, and we would be justly deserving of all of that. And you say, yeah, but I can explain all of that. Yeah, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can accuse us. And if God is against us, bringing charges against us, who can be for us? And you can line up every lawyer that you would want to line up. You can line up every forensic expert you would want to line up. You can get all of the masses of all of the ages to testify for you, and it would do no good because God would be the judge, and God knows exactly who you are and exactly what your sin is. But isn't it wonderful, the Bible says here, that the answer to this question how does a man get right with God? The first book that was ever written in the Bible, the oldest book written in the Bible, is not Genesis, but it's probably the book of Job. Job lived uh, at the time of Abraham, and his life was written down. And in Job 25, Bildad, one of Job's friends, says, uh, basically asks the same question. How can a man be righteous before God? And that's what it really boils down to. And in these verses, we see that Paul answers it. He who did not spare his own son. There is no other way. There is no other plan. There is no other pathway to heaven. It has to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our loving, gracious, wonderful God looks down upon us and he says, I have every right to condemn you and to cast you into hell forever because you have not obeyed my law and I can bring charges against you and you could not answer or defend yourself against those charges. You would be absolutely and totally hopeless against that. You ever been driving over a hill a little bit too fast, and you see a highway patrolman down there, what do you do when that happens? You react. You feel something when that happens. You ever been to court? You ever walked into a courtroom? You ever been called to testify? Have you ever been just a little bit nervous? Have you ever had charges brought up against you in a court of law? You would not be nonchalant you would not act like it's no big deal. Your heart would be beating faster. Your blood pressure would be up. Your palms would be a little bit sweaty. You're wondering what all is going to happen. You'd be nervous in front of that judge with his or her robe as they uh, have the gavel and they pronounce things. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before God Almighty, the one who knows everything about you and can bring any of that up, knowing not only what you have done or what you have not done, but even knowing the very motive behind everything that you say or think or do or don't do. In other words, you'd be totally defenseless. And this same God is the one who said, I demand a sacrifice. There must be justice. And the soul that sins, it must die. And that death would usher us into an, an eternal death in the afterlife, what the Bible calls the second death. But, 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 listen. This same God says... And I will send my own son to go to earth and become human. And he will live a perfect sinless life, never failing to do what he ought to do and always doing everything that he is called to do with righteousness, with the right motive for the glory of God the Father. And then he will die on a cross and I will punish him in your place for your sin. And the worst part of the cross, as horrific as it was, was not the physical death. Now, don't discount that because it was the most horrific way to die ever invented by man. In fact, have you ever heard of someone say, I was in excruciating pain? Did you know excruciating pain? Excruciating, that word, is from the Latin meaning to be crucified. Ex out of cruciating, crucified. And uh, to excruciate someone was to kill them on a cross. Jesus went through all of that. But what made him shriek, what made him cry out was, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. And the full weight of God's wrath that would be upon you and everyone that has ever lived in hell for eternity was taken and concentrated and put on one man for three hours on a cross and it was more than he could bear. It literally broke his heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when the debt is paid... He said those wonderful words, it is finished. Think about that. The debt, your sin debt, freely, fully, totally, completely, absolutely paid for by his own son. And God the Father says, if you want to be right with me, you trust in not what you do because everything you do is imperfect, flawed, and sinful. But what my son did is perfect and he did it for you. And if you will trust in him completely as the full payment for your sin and surrender to him as Lord, I will take his righteousness and I'll put it on your account and make you a part of my family, and give you the gift of eternal life with me forever, prepare a place for you in heaven, and above all of that, I will come and live in you, and give you peace and power and acceptance and grace for the rest of your life. 
here on this scarred, sinful earth. We have God with us, Emmanuel, and we also have God in us, the Holy Spirit. So, how does a man get right with God? That's what we're told here. He did not spare his own son, and with that, he freely gives us all things we need for whatever we're going to go through in this life. Did you know God already knows what your tomorrows are? He already knows what you're going to go through that's going to bless you. He knows what you're going to go through that's going to break your heart. And He has already given you grace, and He has already given you power to make it through and to be a conqueror in that because He has given you Himself. And we don't walk in our victory or victory we attain. We walk in His victory and the victory that He has attained for us. It answers that ultimate, that absolute question. And who is going to answer that? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And of course, the answer is no one because God has given us His Son. He did not spare His own Son. That shows you the love of God for you. Look at the cross. Not your circumstances. Don't look at how you feel. Don't look at what other people say. Don't look at what your position or your station or your uh, circumstances are. Look to the cross and know. And number two, it answers the accuser. Paul says in verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, people do it all the time. You ever been misunderstood? You ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been rightly accused? That hurts, doesn't it? When you know, when someone brings something against you and you know you are guilty of all of that. Well, did you know that the Bible says you have someone who is accusing you constantly before God in heaven? The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Now, what happens when the accuser is up there? Lies! It's all lies! Unfortunately, that's not exactly right, is it? Sometimes it's true, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our self-will and our stubbornness, because we are protecting ourselves, we'll lie when it's convenient, we'll stretch the truth, We'll hide something. We'll cover things up. We make ourselves look better than we really are. And on and on we could go with all of that. And Satan in heaven points out those things. And he says to God, If you are a just God, and you have said in your word that you punish sin, and that the soul that sins must die, and that you are purer than to uh, allow iniquity into your presence then how can you let that person into heaven? How can they be saved? Well, that's a pretty serious charge. And it's really serious when it's right. When it's right. And because we are sinners, we would have to admit many times, he's right. Other people are right. There are charges that can be brought against us. And if we had to defend ourselves, we'd lose our salvation before we left this building, wouldn't we? If I could lose my salvation, 
I would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. And you'd be surprised how quickly it would happen. But Paul says, not defend yourself with what you've done and how good you are or how you didn't mean to do it or how somebody misunderstood you or how it's the fault of people around you or, or how you wouldn't have done it had it not been for the environment you were in. All of those are inadequate. You don't even accept those from your own children. You think God's going to accept it from you? And yet when Paul says, who then shall lay a charge against God's elect. Well, people try, and the devil tries, and God says, here's your hope. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Kind of like saying to the devil, who do you think you are compared to Christ? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You know, when the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that is true. And we can say amen to that, right? And we continue to sin. So what's our hope? Christ died, paid for our sin debt in full, past sins, present sins, and future sins. And by the way, when he died, all of your sins were future sins, weren't they? You weren't even born yet. And he's at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. The devil's accusation are no match for Jesus defending you and praying for you and standing up for you with nail-scarred hands saying, the debt has been paid in full and the case is thrown out of court. Paul says it answers the accuser. All of those things that would come against you all of those things that you indeed are guilty of, covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Christ, and he sees the righteousness of Jesus on your record book. The resurrection answers the accuser, the accusations of our enemy, the accusations of our foes, the accusations of those who would trip us up. And so Paul tells us in uh, this passage that we can rest in what Christ has done because we serve a risen Savior. Revelation 12.10 tells us a little more about it. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Who is he who brings a charge against God's elect? None less than Lucifer, than Satan, than the adversary, than the devil himself. And what is the answer to that? It's not you, it's not me, it's not our circumstances, it's not our performance. It's Christ himself who died, who rose from the dead, who is at the right hand of God the Father. And with each accusation, he rises to our defense. He prays for us even before we go through our times of temptation because we have a merciful Savior, a loving Savior, and we have a powerful Savior. Praise His holy name. That's a good answer. Who brings a charge? 
Satan, who defends us, Jesus. And whenever anyone, including the devil, fights against God, I have no trouble picking the winner because I know who it's going to be. Our God reigns and rules and is victorious. Here's another thing it answers. Number three, it answers the adversary himself. Notice it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, don't you know the devil would love to do that? And how does he try to do that? And what kind of tools would he use to do that? Well, Paul lists them here. Tribulation. You'd be surprised how many people are all gung-ho about Jesus until trouble comes. Then how could God allow this to happen to me? Hey, look at what Jesus went through. Compare that to what you've gone through. And then ask that question. How I do good, bad things happen to such good people? Well, you're assuming that you're good? There's no one good. No, not one, the Bible says. And again, you go back to the cross and you find the perfect Son of God bore the wrath of God. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was accused falsely. All of those things. How could that happen to Jesus? Because he was perfect and you're not. That's not a good question to ask. You're going to have tribulation in this world. And by the way, the word tribulation is the word in the Greek. It's flipsis. It means pressure. And so a lot of times tribulation is not somebody hitting you with a whip. Sometimes it's just them making fun of you. It's, it's losing a job for the cause of Christ. It's not fitting in with your family. It's pressure and it's the stresses of life. Shall that separate us? And the implied answer is no. What about distress? We all have distressing times of life. Will that separate us from the love of God? The fact that you're going through distressing times, does that mean that God doesn't love you? No. Persecution. What about if our government turned on us? What if our neighbors and our co-workers turned against us and they began to burn down our houses of worship? If they begin to run us out of the towns and the cities and the villages where we live like they do in other parts of the world? If they pass legislation against us? If they forbid us to preach the word of God? If they forbid us to teach our children that God created the heavens and the earth? Those types of things. Will that separate us from the love of God? And Paul saying no. Persecution or famine? What if we don't have enough to eat? There are some believers around the world that struggle to get a meal. In fact, in Jesus' day, if you didn't work, you didn't just miss a paycheck. You did not eat. They worked every day for bread. Can you imagine living like that? They couldn't take time off. They couldn't take vacations. They couldn't have any of the luxuries or life. In Jesus' day, the common person worked for one thing, and that was for daily bread. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. We don't even think about that. We live in such a luxurious society, and we eat like kings. Think of what it was like back then. Shall famine separate us? No. What about nakedness? I don't have anything to wear. But what if that were literally true? What if you and your children were wearing rags because you couldn't get clothes or you couldn't afford clothes or clothes were not available? And especially the idea is adequate clothing for the weather. What if it was cold and your children didn't have a coat? What if it was cold and you didn't have even so much as a sweater to put on? Would that separate you from the love of God? 
Well, that would be one of the worst things you could go through. And so Paul lists that. And the answer is no. Or peril, meaning danger. Or sword. What about war? Does any of that separate you from the love of God? And Paul says that back in the Psalms, the psalmist said, For your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet Paul says in the New Testament it's a little bit different. We're not just waiting for the slaughter. We're not just waiting to get this life over with, no matter how hard it may be. He says in verse 37, Yet in all these things we are, and he uses the word, Hooper Nike. The Nike is N-I-K-E. Does that sound familiar? You probably got tennis shoes or a t-shirt or something like that that says Nike on it. That's the Greek word for victory. That's the Greek goddess of conquering. And Paul uses that same word here, more than conquerors, Hooper Nike, Hooper Nike, we might say, which means we are hyper conquerors, super conquerors. And how are we super conquerors? Through him who loved us. The word Satan, Hasatan in the Hebrew, it actually means adversary. He is against everything you do, everything you stand for. And he stands, and he and his demons stand in your way. And they use everything in life, especially the bad things, to try to get you to stumble, to fall, to trip up, and to trip up others when you fall. You've ever watched a pack of runners when they're running maybe in the Olympics and one falls and it causes three or four other people to fall or those bicycle races or maybe in NASCAR, that's the way it works. When you fall, other people tend to fall as well. And so if he can get you and other people to stumble and to fall through hard times, bad times, then you're going to have an effect on other people and other people are going to have an effect on you. And so he is your adversary and so he causes... And he uses various circumstances. And notice of those things that were listed from normal, everyday things. Everybody has trouble. Everybody has some distress. But all the way to the extremes of persecution and war and famine and those type of things. He'll use anything he can. He'll take you any way he has to. And Paul says that when we think about all of those, are they more powerful than our risen Savior? And the answer is a resounding no. And we see throughout history, 2,000 years of Christian history, people who have surrendered their lives to this Nazarene carpenter have stood up to governments. They've stood up to persecutions. They've stood up to famines and wars. They've stood up to the loss of property. And they have conquered. And we still worship him today because in Christ we are more than conquerors. And our victory is not in the car we drive. It's not in the house we live in. It's not in the brand of clothing we wear. It's not in the variety of food that we eat. It's not in the vacations that we can take. It's not in the number of Facebook friends we have. Our victory is in Jesus, our Savior forever. And we are so quick to forget that. So it answers our adversaries, everything that will come against us, and we are more than conquerors. And number four, 
It also answers our anxieties. Well, we live in an anxious society. People just have anxiety after anxiety after anxiety over everything that goes on. And if you're not anxious enough in and of your own self, all you have to do is listen to the psychologist and listen to the news media and they'll give you a whole lot of other things to be anxious about. And they'll name it and they'll give it initials and they'll talk about it. You'll never get over this. You'll always be affected by this. This is the kind of stuff you're just going to have to live with. You are stuck. You were molded. You were made to be this way. Well, thank God we have been liberated from the molds of this world. We've been liberated from the molds of our DNA. We have received a blood transfusion when we got saved. We are a new creature in Christ, a species of being that has never existed before. We are sons of the King. We are children of the Father. We have new life. We have eternal life. We have the life of God, and we have the presence of God. We have the promises of God, and we have the power of God living in us. And it's amazing how the gospel changes everything. Someone said one time they went to a psychiatrist and they said, I've got an inferiority complex. And after about five minutes, the psychiatrist said, you don't have a complex, you actually are inferior. You know what we do as Christians? We admit it. I'm inferior. I'm inadequate. I'm unable to do anything. And it's through our brokenness that we actually find our victory because Paul said it's in our weakness that we are made strong. Listen to these anxieties. Anxieties that are seen and unseen. Sometimes they come through human means. Sometimes we don't even know what they are yet or any of those kind of things. What, what did he talk about when he mentioned these particular anxieties that we're going to face and he said for I am persuaded are you persuaded today are you persuaded about anything so many people live their life just by a whim they live their life just by the seat of their pants we need some people that are persuaded about some things and so life or death that's everybody Everybody that is alive is living, right? I should have been a detective, right? But I also know this, and you know this, everybody that is alive is going to do what? They're going to die. Everybody's going to die. Are you anxious about death? Are you afraid about death? Are you worried about death? If God is for us, who could be against us? What shall we say to these things? The Bible says. Notice how he says in here, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities. You worried about the supernatural? The paranormal? A lot of people are. They're scared to death. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what's happening in the unseen world. Well, neither do we. But you know what we rest in? The devil's not sovereign. His demons are not sovereign. It's not as though, don't ever think that as you are putting on your armor and fighting your warfare, that you are the difference maker for God. No, you're not. You think God's in heaven going, oh, if only I could get Greg to do and fight 
his warfare, then I could really do something. Is that your theology? Because that's wrong. That's dead wrong. God is sovereign, not the enemy. Some of you are worried and you think that there is bad karma. I hear people say that. People write about it on Facebook. That is a Hindu mythology. That's not Christian at all. Some of you are thinking about, well, maybe there is such a thing as ghosts and departed spirits that still live in my house. or anything. No, people, when they die, they either go to heaven or hell. Don't be superstitious. Don't fall for tarot cards. It's a lie. Don't fall for the Ouija board. It's a lie. Don't fall for seances. It's a lie. Those are all demonic counterfeits designed to try to frighten you, to harass you, to intimidate you, and they are not of God, period. But they don't threaten God. They don't change God. They don't hinder God because our God rules and reigns. And then he says, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, governments, could be spiritual power, could be physical power, governments, nor things present, things that we can see. You see anything on the horizon in our nation that kind of bothers you? I do. You see things changing and things moving in a Bad direction? I do. Does it scare you? It shouldn't. Because they're not capable of separating you from the love of God. What about things to come? It's not always the known that bothers us. It's the unknown. Boy, there are people I can listen to some podcasts, some radio programs, and they can prognosticate what they think is going to happen. And that's more scary than what actually does happen. Isn't it? And they don't know. They don't know. And yet we are afraid and we panic on all of this. And none of this is able to separate us from the love of God. He says, nor any other created thing. Just in case he missed something, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And I love that because it answers all of our adversities and our anxieties all of these things are things that we worry about these are all things that we would look at and we would go well what if well what if well what if well don't you think and look what's happening and look what they're doing and if we don't vote this way and if this doesn't happen all what's going to go on i'll tell you what's going to happen jesus is going to come back he's going to take you out and take you to heaven then he's going to come and rule and reign on the earth I can tell you exactly what's going to happen well will that happen if Biden does this or this yes will this happen if we don't do this and this yes will this happen if the devil does this and this yes it's written down it is true and it is going to happen so you know what you should do relax relax and when you get the call to arms, put on your helmet, put on your breastplate, take up your sword, put on your belt, put on your shoes, take up your shield, and go to battle. But in the meantime, what do you do? You rest in the Lord. I want to conclude by 
reading out of the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, I want you to think about what Paul is saying here as he really does give a defense of the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, um, I want you to stand and we'll conclude. Okay, let's stand in honor of God's word and let this be what we leave on. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That means empty belief. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, the substitutionary death of Christ, in accordance with the scriptures it was prophesied in the Old Testament that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's not the apostle James, that's his half-brother James, who didn't believe in him until the resurrection, the head of the New Testament church in Acts. And then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now that's kind of weird, because when Jesus affirmed his resurrection, who did he go to? To cowards who scattered and hid? To a denier, Peter? To James, who thought he was crazy, thought his older brother was just crazy. And to Paul, a man who hated the church so much, he was killing people who were believers in that. That's who you're going to go to? Paul said, is that not enough proof? He went to his enemies, went to his adversaries. And what happened? They are converted. And he said, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though, I was, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And the greatest evidence of the resurrection is for two thousand plus years we still preach the same thing salvation of a risen lord by grace through faith alone in christ alone according to the word of god alone and so i say to you today he is risen amen, amen. heavenly father we thank you today that you answer the absolute question, how does a man get right with God with what you and you alone have done? Thank you, Father, that you answer the questions that come up from our accusers. Thank you that Christ has died and paid for all of that sin. 
Thank you that you answer what our adversaries bring against us in all of our warfare, in all of our troubles, in all of life. Thank you. You are the answer. You are the power. You are the strength. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. And thank you, Father, that even with our anxieties of life, those things that we be brought up, that we might worry about, that we might fear, that we might... I don't know, dream about, have nightmares about, those things that we talk about, things that we can't even plan for. You are the answer because you hold us in your hand and we are in the hand of the Father. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and thank you for the peace that we have. May it flow over us and may your children feel the peace that passes understanding because of a risen Savior who gives that peace to his children. And it's in Jesus, our risen Lord's name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.